Brothers and sisters, our text this afternoon is Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Revelation 14, 1 through 5. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. After the sermon, let's sing together hymn 41, stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Revelation 12 and 13, we get a very brutal, horrifying, and frightening image of the world in which we live. First of all, the dragon, the enormous red dragon, is none other than the devil himself. We see that he went directly after Jesus Christ. The devil tried to prevent the birth the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, he failed in doing that, and he was also driven out of heaven that he could no longer accuse the brethren, but he came down to this earth, and now he fine-tunes his program to each and every one of you, every one of us. He knows us. He's fine-tuned a program by which to reach out to you and to try to prevent you from believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And in his scheming, he decided he's not going to work alone. He gets some helpers. He gets some accomplices. First of all, there's the beast that rises from the sea. His brutal, raw power that you can find in politics, in business, in banking, in the culture of our world, which tries to squash out people from believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He also raises up a beast from the earth, from the dry land. This is the great seducer. This is the chief false prophet who through the media, through culture, through education, through the whole mindset of our society tries to make people think that Jesus Christ is a huge joke and we need the state, we need our society to give us what we need in the way of health and freedom, money, prosperity, and beauty. The thing is, the devil and his two minions, is two helpers, don't simply approach us in a subtle way, maybe a little pressure and leave it up to us, but the pressure can become quite severe. Throughout history, not just thousands, but millions of Christians have been killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Many have lost their jobs, husbands and wives, families have been split apart, because of pressure in our world to get people to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's still happening today. 
in our own society, and we mentioned that this morning, if you stand up tall and strong for your faith, if you are willing to talk about what constitutes a true marriage and a true family, if you speak out against sexual immorality, if you dare to say anything about practicing homosexuality, what a danger and what a sin that is, you will be noticed and you will be dealt with. Depending on who hears you, depending on how strongly you speak, you could lose your job, you could lose a promotion, you might be squeezed out of a teaching position at college or university, you could even be dragged before court. If you are a Christian who stands tall and strong, someone is going to try to take you down one way or another. Anyway, that's the picture that we get from Revelation 12 and 13. And we ask ourselves, well, what chance do we have as Christians to survive in this world? Is there any comfort and any hope against such formidable opposition? We already saw this morning that there is a ray of hope in that the number of the beast is 666. And we, we underline that that's a number that falls short of the perfect number, which is seven. The number seven, 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 however you want to put it, is the number of Jesus Christ. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He holds perfection in his hands, and he can gather, defend, and preserve his church. But the devil and all who belong to him, they're six. They fall short. They're strong, but they cannot overcome Jesus Christ and his church. We saw that this morning. But it is this afternoon, brothers and sisters, as we turn to Revelation 14, that we receive comfort and hope that is unbelievable. We will find who is in control, who takes care of us, and we will see that ultimately it is not Christians who have to be afraid, but it is the world that has to be afraid because it's on the way to the lake of fire, whereas we are on the way to everlasting glory. We will look at the comfort and hope that we find in our text this afternoon under this theme. The Lamb stands on Mount Zion with 144,000 whom he has redeemed. And we will look at three things. The new people, the new song, and the new life. Now we have just established that Revelation 12 and 13 present us with a frightening picture of our world where the devil where politics, culture, the media are all set to draw us away from Jesus Christ. We saw a little ray of hope, though, in the 666. But now everything changes. John says, then I looked. He's not just saying, I'm getting a new vision. But now, now I see something that will take your breath away. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with them 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we have just been dealing with three different beasts or animals. The dragon, the beast from the sea, beast from the dry land. Now we get a fourth animal. Now we get the animal who is a lamb standing on Mount Zion. But he is dramatically different from the first three. The fourth is different. You see, the third beast, the beast that rises from the dry land, is a lamb, but there's nothing sweet or beautiful about him. He is the great propagandist, the manipulator of our world. The beast which rises from the earth, 
He has raw, brutal power. He has a wound in his head. A wound which he passes off as being healed. But in actuality, the first beast has been overpowered by Jesus Christ. Whereas the lamb who stands on Zion, he has a wound that has been healed. And he now reigns on Mount Zion. The dragon... The dragon is an enormous, red, fire-breathing dragon. It is the devil who moves over this earth trying to destroy it in every way possible. But he is not all-powerful. The lamb who stands on Mount Zion. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Brothers and sisters, this fourth animal, this lamb who stands on Mount Zion, he is the king of kings, he is the lord of lords, he is going to overcome the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. We wonder, how do we know all this? How do we know that this, this fourth animal, this lamb that stands on Zion, is so much superior to the other three? That's because this is not the first time we've heard about the lamb. We heard about him the first time in Revelation 5. In Revelation 4 and 5, God is in heaven on his throne, and in his open hand, he holds a scroll with seven seals. Now that scroll is the plan for history, and the fulfillment of all things, the redemption of believers, and the downfall and punishment of unbelievers. An angel shouts out, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's got a right to run history? Who is able now to to redeem God's people, and to bring down Satan and all unbelievers, who is worthy? And then we read, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is worthy because he died on the cross for sinners. He has the right to come into heaven to take from the open hand of God this scroll, to break it open, to read, to break open the seven seals, and to take control of history. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ runs this world. Nobody can move apart from him. What a contrast that is to Revelation 12 and 13. We read at the beginning of chapter 13 that the dragon, the devil, is standing there on the shore of the sea. He musters up the first beast. He musters up the second beast. He is going to create an Armageddon in this world. He is going to sweep over this world. He is going to destroy everybody, bringing them down. Bringing them down. Manipulating them. Seducing them so that they worship only him. But above him rises the Lamb who stands on Zion. Be over the, over the fog, over the Armageddon, over the filth and dirt of a whole world under the power of Satan stands the Lamb, shining in glory, power and victory, running this world, saying, Satan, you haven't got a chance. You're going down. And everybody who follows you is going down. And I will gather, defend, and preserve a people. A people who will be victorious. A people for eternity. And as for you, devil, you too are under my power. 
Martin Luther once wrote about this passage. The devil, even when he does his worst, is still Christ's devil. Did you catch that? It's kind of a strange sounding statement. But the devil, no matter which way he turns, no matter what he does, he belongs and he's under the power of Jesus Christ. He can't move unless Jesus Christ allows it to happen. He is the king and he is in control. Now we read that the Lamb stands on Mount Zion. We wonder what exactly that means. And that's a very familiar Old Testament concept. You know, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, and it's on the highest mount in Jerusalem, that's called Zion, and that's where the temple was built. And there God dwelt in the midst of his people. So Mount Zion represented God in the midst of his people, in the midst of his church. And he always gathers them, defends and preserves them. That image is now brought into our text. Some people think that Mount Zion is the new Jerusalem, which will come down on the last day of the world. And ultimately, that is true. For instance, we read in Hebrews 12, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. So ultimately, on the last day of the world, Mount Zion is the new Jerusalem. God will dwell in the midst of his people. But it means more than that. It is right now, here in this world, that there is a dragon and two beasts that walk among us, deceiving, manipulating, and destroying the world. And it is in this present situation that our text is saying, but the Lamb stands on Mount Zion. Which means, wherever the church is being gathered... There is Jesus Christ in the midst of her. He is a wall of fire around his people. doesn't matter whether it's here in Edmonton or some remote place in China or Afghanistan. Wherever believers are gathered together, that is Mount Zion. Christ says, lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. And there's nothing that can separate you from my love. In fact, he puts his spirit there. This is now the temple of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his dwelling place. And this is where he works, preparing a people for life everlasting. Our Lord Jesus Christ is present wherever his church is. He gathers, defends, and preserves her. And thus it is significant to read in our text that the Lamb standing on Mount Zion has with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now that number, 144,000, brings us back to Revelation 7. There we read about the 144,000. And that's 12 times 12,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of of Israel adds up to 144,000. That's a symbolic number. A few moments after that, we read that the number of believers is a great multitude which no one can number. So don't think that the number of believers, the number of saved, is only 144,000. We're talking millions upon millions of people, a huge multitude of people washed in the blood of Christ and who are saved. But the point of 144,000, this number of perfection and completeness, those who are sealed, emphasizes this. That everyone whom God elected before the foundation of the world 
Everyone for whom Jesus Christ came and laid down his life, everyone who is sealed by the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is with them and preserves them from the power of Satan, the power of this world. And he says to them, In me you are more than conquerors, and nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. You can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will take care of you, and I will lead you safely till one day you sit and enjoy the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem. For an example of this, brothers and sisters, we can think of something that occurred in the early church. We think of Stephen. Stephen was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to his fellow Jews. They detested him for it. They hated him, and they decided to stone him to death. But then we read in Acts 7, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's a beautiful image. What Stephen saw was not the Son of God reclining there in heaven, going, Father, do you see Stephen down there? He's in a whole heap of trouble. He's standing. He's, he's just going to pounce on this. He's not going to let Stephen go it alone and be slaughtered and, and ruined and ripped out of his grasp. Jesus Christ is standing there on Mount Zion, ready to leap to defense. And as Stephen is there, dying for his faith, dying for the gospel, Jesus is with him. He takes him safely through the door to be with him in heaven and even looks over his body to raise it up in glory at the last day of the world. Jesus Christ knows what all of us are going through at any moment in our lives. You're never alone. You're never in a situation where where Satan gets you to the side, or some brutal power, or some manipulation and seduction has got you in some corner, and Jesus doesn't see it. He's standing at attention. He's got a wall of fire around you. And as you hold on to him in faith, he will be there for you and he will protect you. He will make you more than a conqueror so that nothing could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Understand well, brothers and sisters, that our Lord Jesus Christ is not saying in this passage, you will never suffer. It was only too clear from what we read in 1 Peter 2 that whoever takes up his cross and follows Jesus will suffer. You will suffer in this world. The point is, in Jesus Christ, the suffering can never overwhelm you. I mean, what can the devil really do to you? He can maybe take away your job, but can he take away your faith in Jesus Christ? He can make you a martyr. He could create a situation where you'd be thrown into prison, lose your job, maybe even be killed for your faith. But he cannot take away your relationship with Jesus Christ who will take you through the door of death to be with him in heaven. And brothers and sisters, that's got to be our mindset. As we work through Revelation, as we see chapters 12 and 13, when we see the brutal power of Satan, when we see the seduction and, and manipulation of our culture and the world in which we live, please don't get down. Don't be afraid. Don't give up. Don't think the devil is in control. Jesus 
The Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who now holds the scroll of history, is on Zion. King of kings, Lord of lords, He loved you so much, He died for you. He said, nothing will separate you from my love. So as you live your life here in this world, how about a little bit of character? How about a little bit of strength? How about a little bit of confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ? And say, devil, you give me your best shot. This is my Lord. This is my Savior. And that's the one I will follow. And you know what? Satan will slink away from you. He has no power over you when you are not afraid. When Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you trust in Him and you walk in His ways and He is your defender and Satan has no power over you. One little word shall fell him. Now in our second point, John witnesses something else in verses 2 and 3. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. John hears something. He hears a song from heaven. It's like the sound of mighty rush of waters. If you've ever stood at the Niagara Falls, the sound of the falls is deafening. It reverberates. You feel the power of the waterfalls. It's, It's overwhelming. And that's what the song is like. It's an overwhelming power. And at the same time, it is as sweet as harpists playing on their harp. The song he hears is a song of power, of beauty, and of sweetness. It is a song of hope. We read, they sang a new song. Who is they? Who is singing? Some say it's the 144,000. But it's not. They're not singing. They hear the song. They, they, they're learning the song. What we read is that they sing before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, which brings us back to Revelation 4 and 5. We read there of God and His throne, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders are around the throne, and they sing a new song. But then we read about the angels who sing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It is the angels who sing a new song, the strains of which are reaching down to earth, that all God's children may hear it and learn it, a song of power, a song of beauty. How wonderful it is that it is the angels who sing. The angels who sang for joy when God created this world. The angels who were out in Bethlehem's fields with that beautiful hymn of praise of the newborn king. The angels at the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. They compose a new song. Each of the psalms we sang today speaks of a new song. A new song means something new has happened. So you've got to write a new song to reflect the new truth, the new reality just learned. The angels compose a song reflecting the new reality, and it is the last song to be written. The final thing has been done, except for the return of Jesus Christ. This is a song of the grace and the glory of God, who so loved the world, it gave His Son to die for sinners. 
And whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish but have life everlasting and will be preserved in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ even though the devil and his associates in the whole world stand poised against us. Brothers and sisters, the 144,000 hear this song and they learn it. Have you heard the song? Do you know the tune? Do you know the words? Our text says very clearly, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Do you know the song? If you don't know it, how can you be one of 144,000? If you don't know the song, how can you say, I've been saved, I belong to Jesus, and I'm an heir of life everlasting? But please don't panic, brothers and sisters. As a child of God, you know the song even if you don't quite understand what we're saying at this very moment. You see, every Christian is born with an antenna. In our world today, we talk about Bluetooth technology, a way of receiving information over the the airwaves, just through the air. You don't even need a wire. Well, the Holy Spirit has a Bluetooth as well. The Holy Spirit has a way of reaching into you without a wire, without any words necessarily heard in the air, Whenever you hear the gospel, whenever you read the Bible, you read about the good news of God who gave his son to die for you. It is the Holy Spirit who takes that truth, brings it through your mind and into your heart, that you in your heart know the certainty that Jesus Christ died for your sins. It is the song that every believer knows. It is a melody It is a tune within our hearts that thrills us. It gives us power. It gives us joy. It gives us hope that there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sure, there's a dragon out there. Sure, there be beasts among us. Sure, there's a whole world that's poised to to bring us down and to destroy the good news of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But all that power brought together is nothing like Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. And the music, the joy, the sweet gospel has entered our hearts. And there's nothing that can take that away. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I remember as a little boy, at times you're all by yourself walking through the dark. It's scary. You walk in the countryside in the dark. You think there's a wolf. You think there's a bear. Do you ever have that? And What did you do as a child walking in the dark and afraid? I remember what I did. I started singing. Whether it was a psalm or a hymn or some song that my parents taught. And when you start singing, the danger, the darkness goes away. As a Christian, we have a tune, we have a music, we have a song in our heart that dispels all danger, all gloom, and all darkness. And the song is, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I know this because the Bible tells me so, and I am not afraid. I am glad, and I give my life to the praise and the glory of God. And that brings us to our final point. We read, These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. 
They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So what we have here is a description of the new life of every believer. This, my brother, my sister, should be the description of your life. We read they were purchased from among men and offered as first first fruits to God and to the Lamb. From that whole common humanity, of all humanity conceived and born in sin and by rights on the road to everlasting doom and gloom, God has chosen a people. He has raised them up as a first fruits, washing them in the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ, setting them aside to serve God, to keep his commandments, and to adore him in every thought, word, and deed. They are the first fruits of an eternal harvest as God's people for the new Jerusalem. Their new life is described in this way. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Literally, it says in Greek, they were virgins. And you can understand that the Roman Catholic Church uses this church to teach celibacy for priests. God admires men who do not get married, who remain virgins, and give their life to God. Brothers and sisters, that's not what our text is saying. This is symbolic. And we understand that from the Old Testament. You know that in the Old Testament, God often describes the relationship between himself and his people as a husband and his bride. Think of the book of Hosea. And God says to his bride, he says to his people, I don't want you to make yourself filthy with another lover, but to remain faithful to me. That's a symbolic way of saying, God's saying to his people, I want you to be pure in that you give your life to me. Don't pursue material things. Don't go after pagan gods. Don't live your life simply for your own pleasure. But be pure, devoted to me as your husband. Be a beautiful, pure bride that every thought, word, and deed is consecrated to me. We read in 1 Peter 2, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And a couple of lines later, we read in 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Peter uses a very interesting image there when he says aliens and strangers in this world. That's what we are. We're aliens. We're strangers. We are freaks. We are freaks in this world. A world which has a certain idea about what's important, whether that be money or sex or the beauty of your body. What freaks you are, the world says, when you see that your whole life is caught up in Jesus Christ, some Galilean peasant who died on the cross. Why are you so different? Why are you such freaks? Well, brothers and sisters, the world makes us that way, but we also make ourselves aliens and strangers to the world. And it is in our lifestyle. It's amazing. We, we share the same kind of human body. We have the same circulation system. We all have brains. We have hearts. We've got feelings. In so many ways, we're the same as the rest of the world. 
But when it really comes down to it, we are so absolutely different. When you follow Jesus Christ, when you give your life in his service, your greatest goal in life is not how much money you have or how many material things you have. Nor are you interested in embezzling from your employer or ripping off your customer. No longer are you interested in sleeping with your neighbor's wife or husband or engaging in pornography. Because your mind and your heart and your soul is pure. Sure, you have to fight with sins in your life, but you struggle. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are so radically different from the world as you give your life to Jesus, as you keep his commandments, and you continue to pray to him and receive from him the guidance and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to be so absolutely different from the world which is all around us. The last line of our text says, No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. Blameless as they followed Jesus Christ and gave their lives to him. Our text adds, They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They follow him. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ liked that image. He said to his disciples, Come, follow me. He said to the rich young ruler, Sell everything that you have. Come, follow me. He said in Matthew 10, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. And that has a sense of of following him even when the going gets tough. And that's what we've seen in Revelation 12 and 13. The going does get tough. We can be seduced. We have young people going back or starting college, university in these weeks you know they're going to be seduced. You know that they're going to be attacked by the the beast, which is the lamb with the, the two horns. You go to a secular college or university, you know you'll be, you'll be hearing about the humanistic teaching of, of evolution. How many of our young people going to college or university aren't going to be pressured to no end to believe that evolution is a fact, and they ought no longer to accept a six-day creation as you find it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's also brutal power. There are people who will go back to work on Tuesday morning, and they'll go to a job where there'll be tremendous pressure put on them to engage in unethical things, perhaps to work on a Sunday, perhaps to join or belong to some militant union. Jesus says, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And if that means you have to let go of a job, if that means you have to stand up in a university classroom and say to your professor, say what you want about evolution. I don't believe it. I believe in an almighty God who created this world by calling it into existence. Do it. Stand up. Follow Jesus, no matter what the consequences may be. And you may be sure of one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ will be like a wall of fire around you and he will protect you and he will bring you on a pathway of glory. Brothers and sisters, it is so clear. Not one of us wants to belong to the devil or to give in to his temptations and pressures no matter what they would be. But on the other hand, you don't want to be a fence sitter, do you? Every one of us is going to say the devil 
course I'm not going to give in to him. But maybe you only want to go halfway. Do you want to be a fence sitter? To hide your faith at school, at work, in your neighborhood? Keep it low key. Don't let people know what you believe, what you stand up for, in the hopes that maybe there'll be no pressure upon you, you will be accepted, and you'll keep your job and your social standing and so on. Brothers and sisters, sitting on a fence is almost like dying. It's like living a life that's no life at all. It is a mental, psychological, spiritual, schizophrenia, split personality. I mean... Do you want to hide what you are? Are you ashamed of Jesus? You got no music in you. You got no song. Look at Jesus, the Lamb who stands on Zion. Look at your King. Look at your Savior. Look at the one who's running. Look at the one who died for you. And be proud of Him. Be strong in Him. Take up your cross and follow Him. Give your life to Him. And walk through life, walk through this world, tall and strong, proud and happy, with a song in your heart, with melody, with a spring in your step. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I walk through the valley. I'm not afraid. I walk with Jesus, my Lord and my King, the one with whom I'm going to spend eternity. I'm so proud of Him. I'm so happy with Him. I'm so delighted in Him. And I want the whole world to know it. Let everybody know it. Let many more hear. Maybe, maybe they too will draw near and want to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's all about His glory, His power, His grace. All glory and praise be to Jesus Christ, the Lamb, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.